Hey everybody, it's Christina Caramo and welcome to It's Solid Food. Why am I a follower of Jesus Christ? Why should you follow him too? Well, because it makes sense. The Christian teachings that we learn from the Holy Bible coherently explain the world around us. And to add some great topping to that dessert are our personal experiences, the personal peace that we have with God. And all this to, together affirms that Jesus Christ is the only way. And that's what we're going to discuss. I'm Christina Caramo, and now it's time for some solid food. Solid Food, where we discuss all things in Christian apologetics, culture, and politics. So why am I a Christian? Why do I believe? Is it because I'm too afraid of the dark? Do I see God as just this fireproof blanket that's going to keep me safe from burning in hell? Well, I do believe in hell, but a God is not a fireproof blanket. Let me read Titus 2, 11 through 15. Very quick. For the grace of God has appeared to offer salvation salvation to all. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good, these then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Why do I believe this? Oftentimes we lean heavily on our own personal experiences and family traditions to be the source of our religious and spiritual beliefs. Now, while those things aren't necessarily bad things in and of themselves, that they oftentimes are great starters and they're great forms of affirmation for our beliefs, but they should not be the source. The source of our faith is our personal relationship with God. But what helps us to grow closer is the faith and the understanding and the evidence surrounding the Christian faith. The fact that we understand and we are aware of all this evidence for the Christian faith, it helps us strengthen our faith. See, faith is not blind. People have this idea that we're just too stupid and ignorant. People like Chuck Todd, who hosts Meet the Press. I talked about it not last week. It was last week where I mentioned his comments about people who believe in Noah's Ark. So oftentimes people and skeptics will say, oh, these people are just too ignorant. Like, I have faith that this roof won't collapse on my head. It's built out of reason. So we have a reasonable faith. So our faith isn't so much that it's, it's because we have reason, it's because the faith has reasonable um, evidence that makes us believe. The source of our faith really is a relationship with God. And let me say that because it is because of God's grace that he allows us to understand, that he illuminates our understanding. It is not myself. So I never want to make it seem like it's because I'm so smart or I'm so witty that I have this understanding, excuse me, eyes itching, of scripture. It is not because of me, it is because he has been so graceful and merciful to help me understand. God calls us all to him. 
but it's up to us if we want to answer the call. And part of his divine, his sovereign plan is to have other people go out and spread the gospel. So part of apologetics, if you will, is us providing evidence for the Christian faith. So no, I do not just believe for no reason. I'm not a Christian because I'm afraid of the dark. And it is our duty as Christians to best understand these things because as 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So some of you listening to my show are not Christian. My intent is not to insult you. My intent is not to put you down. I am not looking to be offensive. My objective is to to provide you with evidence and with information in hopes that you will accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Why? Because I love you. I do believe those who do not accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will will spend eternity separated from God. Liken it to this. If I saw you walking down the street and a bus was about to hit you, but as you were walking, you were having a good time, right? You were just enjoying yourself. And as I'm watching this bus barrel down the street, about to turn you into a human pancake, I'm not going to say, wow, he's really enjoying himself. I don't want to disrupt him. No, I'm watching you about to be murdered by this bus. So I, if I have an ounce or shred of decency, I'm going to say something like, wait a second, this bus is about to run you over. Stop. Wait, wait, wait. So this is why I do what I do. So again, I I like to say that because some people will say, so what if people get upset? I am not seeking to upset people. If you get upset or offended in the process, so be it. That is not my objective. But even if you're not a Christian, I still want you to sit and listen to what I have to say. Because even if you don't believe, don't be afraid to listen to other beliefs. If at the very least, listen to a belief different from yours should help strengthen your own. All right? So that's my small little message. I just don't want to see anybody spending eternity separated from God. So as I said before, apologetics is extremely important. It's extremely important for people to understand why we believe what we believe. Right now, we have a mass exodus of people from the Christian faith. And partially because lots of these questions really haven't been answered. As you guys know, oftentimes on my episode, I'm very critical of the church today in America because I feel they're too concerned with people getting their personal breakthrough and some kind of connection to material happiness and joy on planet Earth that it doesn't do enough spiritual edification. And even the spiritual edification that is offered in many churches is still directly tied to some type of personal victory in this life. And I don't mean like, personal victory as far as me growing in faith and understanding and relationship with God. I mean, as far as a new house, a new car, more money, uh, sickness and things like that. It's not that those things aren't important. No one wants to be poor and sick, but at the same, or depressed, but at the same time, those cannot be the primary concerns of your spiritual journey. The primary concerns of your spiritual journey should be growth in Christ Jesus. So with that being said, The church is not answering these questions sufficiently. So many young people and people in general are simply walking away from the faith because they feel there's no evidence. And the atheists and the skeptics and the secularists have tons of answers to these questions. 
when for too long for Christians, it's been like, don't question God. There's a difference between questioning God to say God doesn't know what he's doing than questioning God to understand why what's happening is happening. Those are two separate things. And since many young people don't feel there's any reason to their faith, they simply walk away. So as Christians, we have a responsibility to answer these objections. So on this episode, I'm going to focus on the main objections that people have to the Christian faith. Number one, how do I know God exists? That's a big one. Second one, how do I know Christianity is true compared to other faiths? It's not like Christianity is the only faith. We clearly know that. There's tons of other religions. So why should I trust Christianity compared to other religions? Why would God send people to hell? That is a big complaint people have. Why would I believe in this bully? He's a bully. Or some people say God is a cosmic child abuser. Okay, we're going to talk about that. Did Jesus raise from the dead? That's a very important. Our faith hangs on to that, right? Did he raise from the dead? That's this whole Resurrection Sunday, or some people call it Easter, really. That sounds like a zombie to me, huh? We're going to talk about that. Another big problem people have is why does God allow evil? Because we think about it from this view. If I was God, I wouldn't want my kids suffering. Think about any parent, right? Who likes to see their child cry? Nobody unless you're sadistic. So you say to yourself, if I, as an earthly parent, work very hard to make my kid happy, well, then God, being God, how does he allow evil? We're going to get to that. And lastly, why should I trust the Bible? Why trust that book? So, folks, I'm going to pack in one hour my answers to these questions. And it's not just my answers, it's the answers to the question. And it isn't because Christina's so smart. I have done the research, do have a little bit of formal training, shall I say, but because God, I've, I've opened my eyes to the things that God has put out there for everybody, not just myself. So the first one, how do I know God exists? Simply put, I would say natural theology. Now, we can infer from logic and observing nature around us, around us that there is somebody out there. There just has to be somebody out there. Why do I say that? Our universe and planet Earth is so orderly, so orderly. And not only is universe and planet Earth so orderly, it works synergistically. Even, for example, is it, I believe it's Jupiter. Jupiter absorbs asteroids because of the gravitational force that keeps asteroids from hitting Earth. And the stars, when a supernova happens, it allows oxygen and carbon to emit in space to reach Earth so it can sustain life. There's so many things. There's so many things that have happened that how could nobody be behind it? And the way our ecosystems and the way everything on planet Earth needs something else on planet Earth to survive. Very basic. We need plants. Plants need us. And when I just say us, I don't mean just humans. I mean dogs and cats and squirrels and birds. We breathe oxygen, right? So we get oxygen from our trees 
And those trees get CO2 from us. So we need each other. I mean, think about just all of that. I don't need to go any further. I think I've made my point in that regard. So with that being said, it clearly seems that somebody designed this system. I remember once I was sitting with someone and we were sitting down and this person is not a Christian. They are, they were our lapsed Christian. And he said, we were sitting down at a restaurant and it was a bottle sitting on the table. And he was just saying why he didn't believe in God, blah, 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 blah. And I said to him, I was like, I said, you know, that bottle, I'm like, you know, who made that bottle on the table? And he's like, I don't know the guy's name. I said, exactly. So, but it was somebody made it. He's like, yeah, somebody made it. I said, okay. How much more complicated is the universe and planet Earth? I would argue that the universe and planet Earth are significantly more complicated than the bottle sitting on the table. And since it's illogical for me to believe that that bottle just made itself, how is it logical for me to believe that the universe and planet Earth just made itself out of nothing? And he just sat there like, okay? So it's obvious that somebody's behind it all. Now, when we get into like natural theology or what I'm getting to right now is intelligent design. Intelligent design is a scientific theory that we can observe, we can infer from scientific evidence that there is an intelligent designer behind our existence. So it's kind of like it's just logical. And these points necessarily here don't get into Christian theology per se. It just gets into the evidence that there's somebody out here. So first we got to establish that there's somebody out there. Before we get into who God is and Christian theology, we first need to establish there's somebody out there. So come on. Now, when we get into scientific evidence, for some reason, people think that science and religion are at odds. That is false, people. That is totally false. That's a lie. Okay. For some reason, it's like, well, I lean on science and reason. I like science and reason too. And from inferring on science and reason, it's obvious that somebody's out there. Let's start with the first one, the Kalam cosmological argument. Now, don't worry about it. I'll explain. So what the Kalam cosmological argument is basically stating that everything that exists, premise one, is that everything that begins to exist has a cause. We would say that's true. Everything that begins to exist does have a cause. We know that the universe began to exist. How do we know? The Big Bang. So one of the things, really quick, well, I explained premise two, which is that we know that the universe began to exist, is that the guy, Edward Hubble, Edward Hubble, last name Hubble, right? We call it the Hubble telescope. So he noticed that the universe is expanding. Now, for a long time, it was believed by scientists, you know, that the universe was a closed system, that the universe always existed. However, as we can see that the universe is expanding at a rapid pace, constantly outward and bigger, that means that if we press rewind, that what? It would go smaller back in. So, if the universe was getting smaller, that means it had to start at an infinitesimal point. 
hope I said that right, but a really, really tiny point. And so from that tiny point, it's like an explosion. The universe is expanding as though it was an explosion. And so with the evidence, with the observation, and with us being able to observe the movement of light, that things are constantly expanding in our universe, it lets us know that the universe didn't always exist. So the next point are the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Now, with the first and second law of thermodynamics, number one, we know that energy cannot be created or destroyed. It just simply transfers. So there's only a set amount of energy in our universe. So if our universe had a definite beginning, and after that definite beginning within our universe, there's only a set amount of energy. Why do I say it's only a set amount of energy? Because according to the second law of thermodynamics, we are running out of usable energy. So that means there's only a set amount of energy and we're running out of it. And our universe is constantly expanding. So that means our universe had a definite point because if you rewind backwards, remember, get super tiny. So with that all being said, we know that somebody had to make it go boom, right? So let's get back to that Kalam cosmological argument. So number one, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Point two, premise two. The universe began to exist. So conclusion, general, that the universe had a cause. And who would the cause of the universe be? Let's go back. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. So therefore, the universe has a cause. So since we know the universe didn't always exist and the universe had a cause, then that means that there's somebody that brought made it cause. And that somebody has to supersede energy. That person has to be beyond time because one of the questions people have was, well, who made God? <laughs> Stupid question. And I'm going to tell you why. Since our universe came into existence, that means at that point, linear time came into existence. Now, I say that because if someone's going to say who made God, okay, well, then who made that person? Who made them? Who made them? Who made them? And then you get into what you call infinite regress, which is a logical absurdity. You cannot have infinite regress. So let me grab, I don't know, this envelope here, okay? So with this envelope here, just imagine this envelope here is like a number line, right? So... You guys are looking at it backwards, so let's forget, let's forget the direction I'm going in. But let's just say I'm going forward, right? So that's going forward infinitely. If we went infinitely backwards in linear time, we would just keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going, and we would never arrive at our present state. So it's a logical absurdity. We cannot have infinite regress. So whoever made our universe had to pre-exist the earth and they have to operate outside of linear time. So they had to be extremely powerful, extremely uh, smart and operate outside of linear time. Now, let's get into why I say extremely smart. One of the things you have to remember is how fine-tuned our earth is in the universe. The, the balance is so small and I had the number written down somewhere and I'm so mad at myself that I don't have it written down for you right now. But the number is basically, I it's like how many um, 
particles are in the earth. The, the number that basically explains or quantifies how delicate the balance of all the different elements of earth are, not earth, but the universe are, is more than how many like particles are in the universe. It's something like so precise. And the earth is, the whole entire universe is so fine-tuned. And then it wasn't like there was a big bang and a big crunch. Like some people tried to hypothesize, well, maybe there was multiple bangs and multiple crunches. But then it was just, everything would just collapse in on itself. And then too, with the fact that we're running out of reusable, out of usable energy, right? Because energy doesn't die. We just run out of how much is actually available to us. So the big bang and the big crunch would create a situation where we didn't have enough energy to keep banging out and crunching back and banging out. So on that one bang, the whole universe was just so fine-tuned. And that gets into something called specified complexity, that we can tell marks of design by how complex something is. So when you see something that's very complex and very specific, like if I take a, a bottle of M&Ms, right, and I toss them up in the air and they scatter all over the place, well, it's, it's complex because you see how they're just all over the place, right? It's a very complex situation, all these M&Ms on the ground. But if you see a group of M&Ms spelling out a name, then you can tell that this complex design, aha, notice I use the word design. You can tell it was a complex design. It's not just complex, but it's also designed. So now these M&Ms have been organized in a way to communicate a message. You see the specific the specificity behind the complexity. So therefore, you can tell that somebody did it there. But put it there. If you just saw some M&Ms spilled over, you wouldn't necessarily assume that someone poured out the M&Ms. It could have just been that they were not put in a safe or balanced location that just caused them to spill out. It could have been nobody. The wind could have knocked it down. The wind does is not a sentient. It, the wind is just the, a force. It's not a sentient being, right? So you wouldn't assume anything. However, if those M&Ms spelled out a word because it's very specific, you would necessarily infer that somebody did it. So if we would infer that from the M&Ms or like the example I gave earlier about a bottle, I mean, how much more specific are human beings? Let me move this along because I could stay on here all day. Then you got DNA. DNA is Four letters, I believe it's A-C-G-T, A-C-T-G. So DNA is basically like a code, it's like the language for life. So DNA is information. So it's everyone has very specific DNA that makes you who you are as far as your physical appearance go. With that being said, information necessarily comes from a mind. So human beings are programmed in such a way that it necessarily leads us to conclude that somebody programmed us. Not just humans, but animals, everything. There's DNA and everything. Information necessarily comes from a mind. Oh, folks, we could keep going on. And then I'd get into really evolution. And, and not to, I just trying to, I'm trying to do a cursor review. I've already seen, I'm, I'm, I'm like running out of time almost. And I still got five of the topics to cover. The issues I have with evolution is number one is that it, it doesn't make sense. For example, sexual reproduction. Now, let me explain. Humans and like 98% of the animal kingdom all procreate via sexual reproduction. With that being said, how did you have two of this? How did you get the opposite sexes during the evolutionary process? 
Because actually a more efficient way to procreate would be asexual reproduction, not sexual reproduction. Also, you have um, things like, for example, like the human eye. Certain elements of our body, they work synergistically with other parts. So the word is escaping my mind right now. I'm so sorry. But for example, like you need multiple, like with the human eye, you need all the parts to work perfectly in order for you to see. So it's not like you can have one part and then the other part not fully evolved in order for you to see. You need to have all parts fully evolved and working together for you to see. So irreducible complexity. I'm sorry, guys. That's what we call it. Irreducible complexity. So the thing about it is, is nothing can be reduced. It all has to work together. So how did that happen? If it just evolved step by step, generation by generation, that one part of the eye worked and then the other part of the eye didn't work. I mean, again, I could spend an entire hour just on some of these topics. It just doesn't add up. It makes far more sense that we there was special design and we were just designed by God, not that we evolved over time. I mean, it is so many holes in the argument of evolution because a lot of people say, well, I'm a Christian who believes in evolution. But the problem is, if you are going to say I'm a Christian that believes in evolution, there creates all types of theological problems when you get into like the fall of man, when you get into salvation. I mean, there's so many issues that come from that if you embrace the evolutionary view that contradicts the special design uh, discussed in scripture, but I'm not going to get into that right now. But, you know, if you just think, and then two, evolution is not uh, proposed as a theological view or like there could be a common ancestor. No, when evolution is pushed in society, it's, it's pushed through an atheistic lens to explain how we existed or we came into existence without God. That's what happens. Um, and it doesn't add up. There's no transitional species. I mean, off, where have we observed in nature mutations that lead to betterment and improvement? We only observe mutations that lead to some type of harm or deficiency or defect in a species. Also, where are any, there should be some species somewhere going through the evolutionary process as we speak. How come there are no observable evidence um, evidence of evolution? So there's all kind of stuff. And then oftentimes when they try to create evolution, it's always in a lab setting, which means there's some mind behind it. I mean, there's just so much, so much. But let me move on because I'm running out of time. The second point is why do you believe and Christianity compared to other religions. Well, here's the first thing. What claims the other religions make? What claims the other religions make? We have to ask ourselves, what claims do they make under the claims make sense? Do their claims comprehensively explain the world around us currently? Do they? And you have to do that investigation. Um, what I'm not doing a lot in this episode is something we call polemics. So polemics is basically like a refutation of other faiths. Um, I have spent time studying Islam. I don't necessarily do a whole lot of polemics on Islam. And as I said before, if you're not a Christian, uh, if you may be Muslim, Hindu, or watch this episode, remember, as I said, my opening, my object, uh, objective is not to insult or degrade other people or, or just say like you're stupid or nothing. Remember, I'm operating from as a Christian. I totally believe in heaven and hell. I totally believe that Jesus is the only way. So I'm only saying these things in love. Um, but again, what, are, what claims are these uh, religions making? Is there any evidence for their claims? And I haven't found any. I've never encountered another religious belief where there's actual evidence for their claims. Now, somebody may say something like, oh, well, what about Noah's Ark, right? They love to throw Noah's Ark in Christian faces. Well, if God exists, 
he could totally flood the whole world. Also, there are multiple flood myths throughout the world. Now, people say, well, try to use that as evidence against Christianity. Well, actually, no, it makes sense. Since humans started at one point, this actual uh, article put out a few years ago that proved that all humans started from two people. And then to add, make things even more interesting, when they break humans down into categories, they break them down into three categories, Negroid, Caucasoid, Mongoloid. Well, as we know, if we read the story of Noah's Ark, three couples got off of the Ark, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, them and their wives. So three people groups, three families repopulated the entire Earth. And all human beings fall into one of those three categories. Little things like that just really point to the truth of scripture. And then on top of it all, if a worldwide flood actually happened, then it makes sense as humans spread across planet Earth that there would be groups that would maintain telling the story. So it actually only makes sense. And it makes sense that there will be variations of the story as the people group spread out. Why? Telephone game. I played that on like elementary school where they would have somebody whisper something in somebody's ear and then we would go around and pass in the circle and by the time it got to the last person it was not what the first person said so that is just common sense so that's a little piece of evidence there just little little things like that also all religions cannot be true so some people like to say things like well there's just multiple paths to god no there are not there are not multiple paths to god because god is not the author of confusion why would God tell one group this, one group that, and then tell them your way is the only way? That does there, there is no multiple paths to God. All of them make radically different claims. So that doesn't add up. The next thing, and this one is really troublesome for a lot of people. Why would God send people to hell? Well, the first problem is the question is all wrong. God doesn't send anybody to hell. It is our fault we go there. Now, you may say, well, wait a second. <laughs> How are you going to say that? He's the one who decides. No, just like a kid. If you have a child and you gave them a rule and they chose not to listen and they received a punishment, it's their fault they got in trouble. It's not your fault. Like, why are you punish me? You're like, no, you punish yourself when you didn't listen. And the same is true for human beings. What we have to remember is that God is perfectly just. God is perfectly just. He's perfectly holy. He's perfectly just. And since God is perfectly holy and perfectly just, he is not going to tolerate sin from us. How can God be just if he doesn't handle every sin? Remember, he's perfectly just. So that naturally means that he is going to deal with every sin that we commit. And so since God has to deal with every sin that we commit, that means there has to be a punishment for that sin. And someone said, well, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad of a person that I should go to hell forever. Come on now. I've done a lot of good in my life. Let me give you a quick example. Let's say you have me, right? Let's say I go and shoot somebody in the face, right? And let's say I'm a person who does all these great things. I'm a community leader. I'm an activist. I'm a philanthropist. I, I take in homeless kids off the street, do all this great stuff, but I shoot somebody in the face. I go before the judge and I say to the judge, listen, judge, I've taken in 10 homeless kids. I've done this. I've given $10 million to charity. I'm a leader in my church and community. And the judge will say, you know what, Miss Caramo, you've done some really great things and we appreciate them. However, you still have to pay the penalty 
for shooting this person in the face. So that doesn't negate the fact that you have to pay for the wrong that you have done. And then people will say, well, why is it fair that we have to have such a severe punishment? I mean, I only did bad for a little bit of time. That's totally irrelevant. Let's say, let's keep it with the story. And I'm, I've never shot anybody, just so we're clear. But I'm just saying, let's keep with the story of if I shot somebody or killed someone or versus if I committed, let's say, fraud. Now, let's say I committed fraud. Let's say I was like a Bernie Madoff and defrauded people millions of dollars, right? The, the, the consequence between me if I defrauded people of millions of dollars versus if I actually shot somebody in the face, even though I defrauded people, say, for 20 years and it only took me five seconds to shoot somebody, it just, bam, it doesn't take that long to shoot somebody, less than five seconds. The gravity of the offense of shooting somebody is so much more worse than stealing from people. Yes, stealing from people is wrong. Yes, I should be punished, but that's not the same as killing a person. So the gravity of you, if you sinning against an infinitely holy God warrants the punishment of eternal separation from God. That's it. It's really that simple. And then also, why should we have to spend eternity with jerks? Now, let me back up and explain. Jesus, let me say this. Let me let me actually deal with that point last about why should, I mean, how long would it be heaven if we had to spend eternity with jerks? It would be terrible and just be like earth now. Like much of the pain and suffering that most people experience in life is not a result of, say, natural evil. Maybe toward the end of our life, when I mean natural evil, we're talking about like hurricanes, earthquakes, and also disease, okay? Most people or many people experience evil that has nothing to do with like natural evil and has to do with like person to person evil. Why would we want to spend eternity with people like that? I mean, really quick, should Hitler be in hell? Y'all be like, yeah. What about like Ted Bundy or some mass murderer who just killed a bunch of people? What about a child rapist? Like I was reading an article about this man who raped his own 10 year old daughter to death. I think most people be like, heck yeah, let him burn in hell. So we, it's not that we disagree with the concept of hell. It's just we have an issue with how people go and who go. You just don't want to go. So we now have agreed that hell is fair for certain people. Now we are discussing whose standard do we decide by, ours or God's. Remember, God is perfectly holy. He's perfectly just. So that means that we're all deserving of hell. Now, that being said, Jesus died for our sins. And a lot of people are like, well, <laughs> Some guy died for my sins? Well, as I said before, God is a triunal being. God is one. Now, some of the intricacies of the Trinity, we can't explain, right? We can just talk about it. The scripture clearly explains that Jesus is God and that the Son is God, the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to get off into explaining that at this episode. So let me just explain as to why Jesus had to die and why only he could take the penalty. So here's the thing. A lot of people say, well, you know, I don't need somebody dying for me. I don't need anybody. Well, the thing about it is since God is perfectly just, there had to be a penalty for your sin. There had to be, there had to be a penalty for your sin. And you can say, well, why does it have to be a blood penalty? It's a whole other conversation. Not going to get into that. However, there had to be a penalty. There had to be. And only God could reconcile, if you will, 
or satisfy the penalty. But God can't die. Okay, God, God can't die. So God took on human flesh and what we call like the hypostatic union. So God took on human flesh. The son God took on human flesh in order to actually be a perfect sacrifice. Again, God can't die. However, Jesus, the man can die because God is, I mean, not God, but Jesus is truly God and truly man simultaneously. You're like, how can that happen? I don't have an answer for that question. I just don't. Let's be true. I don't have an answer of how, but God is God. He can do all types of things. And to think that God couldn't do that is ridiculous. Otherwise, how would he be God? It's not a logical impossibility. Like a logical impossibility is like, can God make a rock big enough that he can't move? We said, well, God can do anything. Well, then God can make a rock big enough that he can't move. But if he can't move it, is he God? Again, that's a logical impossibility. It's a logical contradiction. And so since it's not a logical contradiction for God to take on human form and to take on human nature as simultaneously with um, the son God, with his also being God, that's not a logical contradiction. So it's totally possible that God can do it. So since God is the only one who can satisfy and be perfect in order to pay the penalty for everybody, and I'm again, not God, but Jesus Christ, then naturally it had to be done this way. And then also it had to be like a spiritual thing for God to take the penalty for everybody. Now, with that being said, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're accepting that free gift of salvation. You're accepting that, I guess, I accept Jesus Christ, and therefore you get the benefits from him taking that, um, from, for him paying the penalty for your sin. And then there is regeneration from the Holy Spirit. All right. Now, why is that important? Because we get a new nature. Now, why isn't that new nature fully realized until after death? I don't have an answer for that. I don't. Now, with that being said, with that being said, we receive a new nature through Jesus Christ. Now, it only makes sense that something in our nature has to change us to make us worthy enough to dwell in heaven. And that gets to my point about why would we want to spend eternity with jerks? Because those unregenerated people would go to heaven and be exactly as they are now. So who would want to spend eternity with them? Not me. It wouldn't be heaven anymore. It would be just as terrible. And then in fact, it would be worse because we would have to deal with every jerk that ever existed. Right now, we only deal with the jerks that exist now. We would have to deal with every clown from the last six, 7,000 years. Who wants to deal with all those folks? Not me. It wouldn't be heaven. So if those folks refuse to accept that free offer and forgiveness, if they refuse to accept the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, it is their fault that they spend eternity separated from God. Now, I know that may sound very mean. I know it may sound very unfair. But folks, it is simply it, 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 is, it is simply the truth. And there is no other way, as I've mentioned, there is no other way for our sins to be forgiven. So the next point is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Well, for one, why should we discount the biblical accounts? For some reason, people have a supernatural bias. Now, 
or I hope to do it Friday's episode. If not, it'll be one episode next week discussing like a lot of pagan religion claims. I do not think that many of these claims from pagan religion, these experiences people wrote about, I don't discount they had these experiences. You may say, what? Wait a minute, I thought you were a Christian. Let me explain. I discount the source of those experiences. I believe the source of their experiences was Satan, not belief. I know that it was satanic trickery and satanic experiences that led them to believe what they believe. If you read the account of Muhammad when he claims he experienced and Gabriel, that is not anything of God. If you read scripture, one of the first things that happens when people encounter an angel, what does the angel say? Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. If you, When you read about Muhammad's experiences, when he claimed that Gabriel came to him, he was terrified. He was totally terrified. So again, when you get to all other religious beliefs, I don't believe these people didn't have these experiences. I just don't agree with the source of those experiences, okay? But in our culture, in our rational postmodern culture, we have this habit of thinking that these supernatural experiences are necessarily fake. We have no reason to discount because as we talked about, my first question was regarding, was regarding whether or not um, God exists. And if God exists, then obviously God could, <laughs> God could totally, um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. Uh, God could totally, uh, do a, tons of supernatural things. So there's no reason to discount the Bible. Also, when you talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in this scripture, it says 500 people witnessed his, after him resurrected. Now, another thing is God could totally resurrect of dead body. That's another thing. He made human bodies, so he totally resurrected the one that died. But nevertheless, 500 people witnessed Jesus resurrected from the dead. As we know that Christianity spread like wildfire in the first century, cross-culturally, cross-continentally, simultaneously. What's also interesting is that I don't want to get off too far off into the Old Testament, but just a quick point of deviation not really deviation, but I think it's such an important point because one of the things God talked about was that he wanted Israel to occupy that land. Now, when you look at where modern day Israel is, that's where ancient Israel was, but a lot more land. With the Jews being in Judea in the first century, because that's where Christianity, the the followers of Christ were first Jewish people and they began to spread out across the world, it makes sense that God would want them right there because they're connected to the major continents. You have Africa going to south, east, I mean west. Then you have Europe going northwest and then you have Asia going east. So if, say, God had his chosen people, and that's a whole nother concept I'm not going to get into in this episode, but if he had them say in like Hong Kong, then they would have to travel all the way to the other side to get to, to get over to Africa and Europe. So it makes sense that what we call the Middle East is like a, a middle section where people pass through and then people can venture out in these various directions. So even the placement where Christianity, if you will, quote unquote, broke out was really, really important. 
Um, in addition to the fact that why didn't Christianity start spreading like crazy until after Jesus died? Now, you can say, well, most religions, whether it's Islam or Buddhism, I mean, they got bigger after the people died because time passed. However, the interesting parts was early Christianity spread cross-continentally, cross-culturally, and without violence. Most religions, oftentimes, they're spread through conquest. Now, there is totally fair discussions to make that part of Christianity's current reach is due to the rise of Western Europe. Um... I won't get off into that. <laughs> oh my God, you guys see, there's so many topics that we can talk about. It's like so much packed into this episode. But early Christianity, early Christianity, there was absolutely zero conquest involved. It was total evangelism, total evangelism. There was no layer of any type of discussion because a lot of people like to say, oh, Christianity came from Constantine. That's like one of the biggest lies from the devil that's constantly spread. That is not true. It is simply not true. I'm not going to get off into that. I made an episode about that last year made a video about it last year. But no, actually what happened is, is it just spread throughout the region with just evangelists. We can see evidence of Christianity in India. We can see all throughout Egypt. Even there were monasteries in, in China by like the fifth century. I mean, they, Christianity spread like crazy. And what was really interesting is I was reading about, uh, I've mentioned this before, about an Egyptian Christian named Pantheus. So he called himself going east to spread the gospel he gets to india and finds well-versed christians in india in like the second century well before constantine and then one of the things that constantine he would send out evangelists to go to spread christianity different places and he sent some south into i believe it was like current modern day sudan and he sent some people south into sudan to uh, spread the gospel, and they found well-versed Christians there. So there were well-versed Christians all over the place in first, second, third century, but it's like, how did this message get out coherently intact without mass communication? Well, it was the Holy, the help of the Holy Spirit. Also, you had Josephus, that who was a Roman, uh, who was a Jewish Roman, um, and these were, I'm, I'm gonna talk about some non-Christian sources, um, you talk about like Josephus who talked about Jesus, who could they, he talked about how they considered him Messiah, how he did miraculous things, how he died and how people reported that he resurrected. You have to think about that. Also, you have to think about Pliny the Younger, who was the governor in Rome, who talked about how the Christians worship Jesus Christ. He talked about their penance for morality and how they uh, um, advocated for moral conduct. Um, you also have Tacitus, who was a senator, who talked about how Nero blamed the Christians. He talked about the death of Jesus Christ. He talked about how people were martyred. See, that's the difference with early Christianity. Why would people willingly be martyred for a lie? So you're talking about the first century. We're talking about early Christianity, that these people were paying the price. We're talking about less than 100 years after the death of Jesus Christ, that people were paying, but willing to die for something that many have claimed to observe themselves. Because even if you read Acts, you hear, um, or, or, or like Luke, you hear the, them, um, I can't remember whether Luke wrote in the book of Luke or Acts, because he's the author of both books. But he talks about people still being alive who, who witnessed the resurrection. So the thing about it is, 
the thing, uh, uh, the thing about it is people are not going to say I witnessed something and then die for something that was a lie. Just like with the apostles, all of Jesus's apostles were martyred except for um, John the Revelator when he was um, exiled. So people are not going to do this for things that they say I witnessed that is a lie because people say, well, other people are willing to die for their religious beliefs. Yeah, but they didn't claim to personally witness something and say, I'm going to die for something that I personally witnessed when in reality it isn't true. Then you have um, Trajan, who was a Roman emperor who complained about Christians not wanting to worship the Roman gods. And why that's really important, because the early Christian martyrs were not necessarily killed for following Jesus. They were killed for refusing to bow to the Roman gods. Rome was a massive empire. And the last thing Rome had the time to do was to um, was to to police people's religious beliefs. However, because they were a pagan society, they believed that you had to appease the gods to get blessings and fortune, whether it's rain or anything else. And they felt that if you didn't pay homage to all these different gods, then you would, um, then you would, um, you would pay for it. So like Paul, and I believe he's at the uh, 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 apocalypse. I'm saying it wrong. I know I'm saying it wrong. But nevertheless, Paul, when he was amongst Greek scholars, and there was, um, I know I'm saying the name of where he was wrong. I, oh, I forget. But at any rate, um, the point of the matter is, Paul, when he was talking to Greek scholars and they had a, 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 a statue to the unknown God. And the reason why they had the statue to the unknown God, because in those pagan societies, they were so afraid to not honor every God there was possible that because they were afraid that something bad was going to happen. So oftentimes the Romans were upset with Christians because they're like, well, you guys aren't paying homage to the gods and you're going to bring misfortune on us. So that was also not just Nero who just blamed Christians for the fires that he but uh, probably said himself, but also there was actual a legitimate concern. People were worried about this. So they killed the early Christians, even though their concern wasn't legitimate because it was rooted in falsehood, but you get the point of why I use the term legitimate. So there was countless other people talking about these Christians willing to die. That's why you heard the, the, the people use the phrase that the blood of the martyrs with the seed of the church, because it's like the more and more persecution they face, the, 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 just the more it grew. Just the more it grew. And you think about like Tom back to bringing up India. Thomas went to India. He just went there by himself. Or you think of the story of like St. Patrick. You know, people take St. Patrick Day to get drunk. But the story of St. Patrick is miraculous. I mean, and that only could have been the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's so much evidence that Jesus rose from the dead because of the supernatural things that began to happen. And like I said, early Christianity was not spread through violence was not spread through conquest. Of course, later on, we saw people simply exploiting the gospel to, to advance their own personal power and economic objectives. But, but in sincerity, there was so much evangelism that happened well beyond that time into modern time that didn't involve any type of exploitation that involved just good old evangelism and the power of the Holy Spirit. The next point I want to get to is why... <clears throat> Why does God allow evil? That is a really big problem that people have. Oh, and let me really say this too about the rising of Jesus from the dead. This is a point I want to admit. Women. Now, 
You may not think of this, but if you read the scripture, the first people to report that Jesus rose from the dead were women. Now, in, in, in that time, society was extremely sexist towards women. So if you wanted to make a claim, especially something like that, excuse me, you were not going to say women were the first witnesses. Because people are instantly going to question the intelligence of women. Not fair, but that's just the way the world was at that time. So if the uh, authors of the gospel were lying, the last thing they would do would, it would be include women in the story. They would say men did. But the fact that they were told that the first witnesses were a group of women is clear as, as huge evidence that they were actually telling the truth. In addition to the fact in the gospel, it contains embarrassing details. Like how Peter denied Christ or Thomas doubted God. There's doubted, uh, uh, Thomas doubted the resurrection. So there's embarrassing details in the Gospels or even some of Jesus' early followers like uh, Mary Magdalene. She was possessed by several demons before she became a follower of Christ. Why would they include those types of details in the story? And then why would they tell a woman who... who um, a woman who was possessed by seven, but not seven, but I don't forgot how many demons she was possessed by. It was one of the first people to real to witness his resurrection. I mean, why would they include this kind of stuff in the story? You 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 see what I'm saying? There's so many things that are considered what we, especially at that time, would be embarrassing details that if you were trying to craft a lie, you you wouldn't put that in there unless it was true. Um. So the next one is. Why does God allow evil? So a lot of people have this idea that, you know, if God exists, why would he allow evil? Let me first say that it's not a logical argument against God. Someone not behaving as you feel they should is not a logical argument against their existence. There are people, there are people who do not behave the way I think they should. That does not mean they don't exist. They very much still exist. Let's first say that. Second of all, the fall of man completely makes sense. As it's obvious that human beings have a sinful nature. Nowhere in human history except for Jesus Christ, who is fully God and the truly God and truly man simultaneously, have we heard or even the, the claim of a perfect human. All humans are very fallible. So that means there is something in our nature, something that we inherit that makes us sinful. Now, since God created everything in perfection, God is not going to create something that is imperfect. Otherwise, he, God is not going to create something that's not perfect. He's God. So necessarily something had to happen as the result of the personal choice of his creation to bring degradation or fallibility into the creation that he made. So just think about it again. God made humans. He made humans totally perfect. But because humans chose to rebel, it introduced sin and death into the world. Why would God create an earth where hurricanes kill people? Why would God create an earth where people are getting cancer? That is not something that God, God did not create cancer. God did not create murder. He did not create our wicked hearts. God made humans perfect. So since God made humans perfect, how do we have sin and death and imperfection in the earth? It had to be something that we did because we made the choice to rebel. So therefore it only makes logical sense that the existence of evil in this earth is the result of human rebellion and not because God did something. And because God gave us free will, he honored that free will and allowed us to continue in our mess. Now, you would say, well, why does God give us free will? 
Because in order for us to truly follow God with our hearts, we have to experience this, the pain of not following him. He had to allow us. If God gave us free will, then if he didn't give us free will, then we couldn't freely follow him because it would be a force, a, a force follow. And also sometimes people say, well, why can't I see God? That will also be a force follow. Now, that's like a child, right? If you, most people, if you have children and you say, don't do that, and you're standing right there, they're not going to do it. But if you walk away, they're going to, that's going to be the real test of whether or not they're going to do it. So us not being able to literally see God with our eyes is really a not a, our opportunity to truly follow him with our heart. Because if we saw God face to face, we'll be too afraid to do anything wrong. So it wouldn't be a true, sincere following of him it would just be sheer fear of punishment okay so with that being said with our free will if god didn't allow us to have pain then too we wouldn't have we wouldn't experience the consequence of rebelling against him like we have to know pain to know that we need god let me explain if somebody has numb fingers and they touch a hot stove they're not going to understand that they're destroying their fingers so they first have to experience the pain to know that it's dangerous so we have to experience the pain of rebellion to understand that we should not be rebelling against god does that make sense i think it does okay so we have to experience that pain of rebelling to understand why we should not rebel against God. Also, it's sad and unfortunate that there's something we call like soul building, that pain makes us better. I made an episode last week about evil, that even in, in a non-context of not necessarily evil, but just pain, pain makes you better. Like you ever heard no pain, no gain. So us experiencing the pain of this life makes us wiser, makes us better. It should be. And naturally, oftentimes when we experience pain, that's when we run to God. A lot of people don't follow God when they don't feel pain. That's just true. We wait until everything hits the fan to say, God, help me. If you read your Bible, read in the Old Testament, how many times Israel rebelled against God and he had to draw his hand back from them, then they were like, oh, God, help us. We're so sorry. We repent. We repent. We repent. And then he would come and rescue them. And then they would rebel again. Read Judges, especially. It's a clear indication of Judges. Then they're, we repent. We repent. We repent. We repent. So that's how people are. That's why it's important to read the Old Testament. I'm going to make a whole nother episode about respecting the Old Testament. So many people just love to read about grace, 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 grace. But there is grace. There is law. There is justice. Anyway, not going to get off into that. Um... Nevertheless, so evil makes us turn to God. And then we realize that we are helpless without him. That's why I talked about in that episode how a lot of people and it, it, who are very well off, that's why that's the disadvantage a lot of Americans have. We're so comfortable. We're, we're too comfortable. We're so comfortable. A lot of people act like, I don't need God. I'm so comfortable. I'm so happy. But then that can be to our detriment. I, I talked about an episode that most Christian, not most, but like if you do the 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 um the economic breakdown of Christians, the largest income group in of Christians in America are people making under thirty thousand, because oftentimes people when they experience hardship they realize that really the only thing that matters in life is God. 
And sometimes wealth can be a curse. Like in scripture where it said it's, it's easier for a, a camel to walk through the eye, uh, to the eye of the needle than a rich man to make it to heaven. It's not because wealth and riches are evil. It depends on what you do with them. It's because so many people lean on the material world to be their comfort and their salvation. Realizing that you're going to die and you can't take it with you. Just saying. Moving on to the last point. Last point is why should I trust the Bible? Okay, so why should you trust the Bible? Now, I'm not going to get into like higher criticism, like getting into the authorship and this, that and the other. Or I'm not going to, uh, you know, how was it written? How was it passed down? Or I'm not going to get into like criticizing the text and why it was written a certain way and why were certain words used. That's not the, the, the there is a total discipline um, uh, devoted to that. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just thinking about why should I trust the Bible in general? One is the Bible coherently explains every aspect of our human existence. Why we are here. Who is God? How the earth is set up. Why the world is the way it is. I mean, you even look, you even look something so basic. To this day, you have Muslims and Jews fighting each other in the Middle East. If you read Genesis, if you read Genesis, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac and Ishmael fighting each other. The descendants of Isaac and Ishmael are literally fighting each other. Like 4,000 years later, they still can't get along. I mean, stuff like that, the Bible talks about that. How could that happen? When you look at how the world is set up, how our whole world is like the things that happen in the Middle East really sway the winds of the world. Those things like that, understanding sinfulness, salvation, relationship with God. The Bible coherently explains why we experience evil, why we experience pain. It, 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 it explains so much of our human existence. There's so much wisdom in the Bible about how to treat each other. So much wisdom. Also, and just how to live your everyday life. It's so much world history. The, the Bible also serves as a history book in some regards. Some of the things that we see happening in the world around us, from a, even from a geopolitical standpoint, we can learn, we can lean in on scripture and see how things are set, were, were transpiring at that time and how they play into today. Also, also, the Bible is 66 books. So the Bible is, is really, and we think of the Bible as a book, but it's really an anthology. It is really a collection of 66 coherent books written over a 1500 year period by approximately 40 people. Now, folks, how can that be anything other than the Holy Spirit that was instrumental and not instrumental, but the Holy Spirit inspired these people? I don't mean inspire as far as um, like just gave them the witty idea to do it, but actually was integral in the process of using human authors. 66 books written over a 1500 year period with approximately 40 authors that is coherent Coherent, folks. 66 books, 1500 year period, 40 authors, and for it to be coherent, folks, that is a miracle. That is a total miracle. A total miracle. And then the last point I'm going to get into why you should trust the Bible is prophecy. Prophecy. Now, Let's just talk about Jesus Christ. The Bible, there are over 
But hold on, let me let me let me back up before I get into Jesus Christ. Well, yes, I'm gonna stay there. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that predict Jesus Christ coming to earth, dying for our sins, and raising from the dead. 300 prophecies. Now, one of the great, couple of great things you need to know. One, the Septuagint. We know that the Greek Old Testament, the Old Testament was translated into Greek 200 years, 200 years before the birth of Christ. Now, how can a book that we know was completed and translated into Greek 200 years before someone's birth have 300 prophecies about that person? We also know like from the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that the Bible, the Old Testament was completed well before the time of Christ. Now, there was a statistical analysis done that for only eight for only eight of those 300 prophecies to be fulfilled about one person, there is a one in 10 to the 17th power chance of that happening. That's just eight. That doesn't deal with the other um, 292. But let's just go over a few of those. Number one, we got, um, excuse me, Isaiah 714, Isaiah 714, and it says, Therefore, the Lord himself, himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, some people want to argue, say, well, the scripture says young woman is referring to a virgin. It's referring to a virgin. Otherwise, just normal people having sex is not miraculous and having a baby. What makes that miraculous? Other, I mean, come on. You guys get the point of what I'm saying. Then you have Isaiah 9, 6, and it says... For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. For this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now notice he calls, <clears throat> he's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Nowhere in the Bible is anybody called God other than God, okay? Because even though we use the term like you see people in the Bible, Lord, when it's referring to Elohim, capital L, okay? When it's saying Lord like a, a, a king or a ruler, small L. There's only one Lord, there's only one God, okay? So again, even in Isaiah 9, it's talking about, we will call him wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So it's prophesying the coming of Jesus Christ. Um, also, we have Daniel 7. Uh, I won't, let me skip before I get to Daniel 7. You have Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. And it says, who hath believed that he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a young root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him 
and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteem him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we stricken him, smitten by God and afflicted. But excuse me, but he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was chastisement and brought us peace, and through his wounds we are healed. No person can do that. But let me continue. And we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that led to the slaughter. And like sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken with for the transgression of my people and they made his grave the with wicked and with a rich man in his death although he he had done no violence remember uh joseph of armatheus uh paid for his burial just saying yet it was the will of the lord to crush him and had have he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offer for guilt now if you read the scripture you know the sacrificial symptom a guilt offering was a payment for sin. Only a guilt offering could be paid with blood. When in scripture has God ever used a human sacrifice? Never. Jesus was a, a human sacrifice, but Jesus is God. So Jesus was not, Jesus chose to do this. He was not dragged to do this. So when else in scripture do we ever read of a human dying as a penance for other people? Never. Only Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, um, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. So it talks about the doctrine of salvation for the death of Christ, how we are saved, we are considered righteous. He impugned his righteousness on us. This is Isaiah 53 talking about this. I shall continue. Out of the anguish of his soul shall he be, how shall he shall see and be satisfied by the knowledge of the righteousness one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. It talks about him bearing their sins. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus interceded on our behalf. This is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 31, 31. Let me just say this quick. Isaiah 31, 31. Uh-oh, I think that's Isaiah. Let me see. Is it Isaiah? I think my notes. No, it's not. I'm sorry. My notes messed me up. It was, uh, I forgot. I forgot. I forgot. Um, no, I think it's Jeremiah. Let me see. 
Sorry, folks, if I'm wrong, I will move on because I did. No, I, oh my goodness, it talks about a new covenant. Uh, yes, okay. And uh, Jeremiah made a mistake. Jeremiah 31, 31 talks about, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that, <clears throat> my covenant that they broke so I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. See, again, that, uh, let me keep reading. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I remember their sin no more. So this talks about no longer will there be a sacrificial system, that we will have the love, we will have that relationship with God on our hearts, that it won't be a system of me being taught by my neighbor. It will be that I will have that relationship with God and he will remember, forgive my iniquity because I now have his name or his, his laws written on my heart. So here are just so many prophecies. And then we want to get into really quick, lastly, Genesis 12. Genesis 12, when God makes the covenant, when he calls to Abraham, he says to him, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and dishonor those and, and you will I curse. And, it, and in you, all the families on earth shall be blessed. Remember, the first Christians were Jews. When we read about the Jew, Jews being God's chosen people, they were chosen for a purpose because God had to set aside a portion of people group for himself to do his salvific work of mankind. He had a total purpose, and you have to read the Old Testament to understand it. And it's really interesting because you see nowadays most Jewish people reject Jesus Christ as Messiah. I was listening to Ben Shapiro talk, and many of them believe that the Messiah is going to be a political figure. You know, the Messiah is not a political figure. The even though I love politics, but that's not where my home is. I love America, but America is not my final destination. The kingdom of God. You know, and so my, my point is, is that the scripture talks about this. So how else have the Jewish people been a blessing on the earth other than the Messiah came through that line? The Messiah came through that line. Those 66 books of the scripture of the Bible, we're talking about the preservation of the law. We're talking about all these things. If, if, if you want to talk about the importance of lineage, just read Matthew where it counts the lineage of Christ. Uh, one other thing is like Daniel 7. You know, so uh, kudos to our Jewish brothers and sisters who protected the scripture and, and obeyed God in the way those who did obey God to preserve the scripture and to preserve all that information because the preservation of the Old Testament gleaned so much information to help us understand why the Bible is true. If you even read like Jesus constantly quotes the Old Testament. If you read like 2 Timothy 3, Paul talks about how the, the Bible is to be totally trusted. It is inspired by God and just for all areas of life. Really quick, Daniel 7, Daniel 7, 
Um, sorry, I got. I typically have my uh, my actual. I like to have my physical book, and then I have uh, um. In, in Daniel seven, it just talks about the Son of Man, okay? And it talks about judgment. It talks about the kingdom will not be passed away. And it talks about how dominion will be given to him to all peoples and all nations of the earth and how they all will serve him. There is no religion that has spread across the world like Christianity. Like 30% of the world's population identify as a Christian. So it's very clear that what happened in Israel all those years has spread across the entire world. The, the percentage of people on planet Earth that are Jewish are like 1%. So this people group set aside and, and, and did these things and, and the, the collection and the holding of the Old Testament and all the things that happened with that people group. And then you think of the early Christians and how it spread across the world. That's the fulfillment of Genesis 12. So I'm going to stop here. Folks, there's so much reason and I, there's so much more I want to say. And I try so hard to condense these this information into one episode but i hope that you share this with other people there's so much evidence for the christian faith it's just overwhelming and just how coherent and complete it is there's so much more to say there's so much more to say but i only got an hour all right thank you for tuning in to is solid food you can check out my website at www.christinacaramo.com um, Instagram at Karamo the Great. That's Karamo the G-R and the number eight. And on YouTube and Facebook at the Christina Karamo Project. And remember to be brave and bold because the gospel of Jesus Christ must be told. Toodles! <laughs>